Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to a special five-part series I am running on a recent white paper released by SAI Global entitled Predicting Risk, a Strategic Culture Framework for the C-Suite. This white paper was authored by Katerina Bogorella, and over the next five podcast episodes, I visit with her on various topics relating to this white paper. In episode one, we introduce the strategic cultural framework. In episode two, we consider what the board and C-suite need to know about ethical risk. In episode three, we consider the differences between espoused ethics and actual goals of an organization. In episode four, we use the cultural framework to take a look at the ethical failures of Wells Fargo and their fraudulent account scandal. In our concluding episode five, we take a look at the ins and outs of ethical reasoning and take a look into the future. It will be a fascinating exploration for you. At the end of the five podcast series, you will be able to utilize the strategic cultural framework to help your organization measure not only what it espouses, but is it actually doing that in practice. In each episode, I link to the white paper itself so you can take a look at it and use it going forward. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. This special five-part series on predicting risk, a strategic cultural framework for the C-suite, a white paper by SAI Global, is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I am back for my concluding episode of my five-part exploration of the SAI Global White Paper, Predicting Risk, a Strategic Cultural Framework for the C-Suite. As always, I'm joined by Katerina Bulgarella. She is the author of the white paper and the cultural architect and ethics advisor in collaboration with SAI Global. Katerina, with that uh, introduction, uh, thank you again for taking the time to visit with me and welcome today. Thank you, Tom, for having me. It's great to be back. So in our concluding part, part five, we're going to take a look at the ins and outs of ethical reasoning and going forward. And I wondered if you could perhaps start by addressing uh, some common biases that people make, uh, that make people less likely to do the right thing and how corporations and entities might be able to manage this uh, problem. Yeah, I, I think uh, that is a great uh, uh, topic. That is a great uh, question. That is one of the key questions uh, um, behind, uh, you know, the strategic uh, culture framework. Because again, we can uh, we cannot uh, change. Um, you know, our mind, but we can re-architect context uh, to make it easier for people to do the right thing. That is why culture is so critical. And in order to do that effectively, we need to understand uh, what type of biases, um, you know, just uh, people may be exposed to. Um, now, uh, there is no way I can you know, just uh, sort of uh, review uh, all the various you know, just, uh, uh, biases and glitches uh, uh, that science has uh, uh, identified and demonstrated. So let me just uh, focus on a few things because uh, I think those are um, quite common uh, and uh, uh, sort of foundational. Um, uh, starting with, uh, um, uh, you know, starting with the fact uh, that by and large people are quite confident 
about the sturdiness of their own ethics. Uh, and they are also likely to believe that uh, they are more ethical than their peers. Um, so, and, and this is very interesting, think about it. So in, not only are we likely to discount our own sort of not great conduct um, uh, and rationalize our own motives, uh, but the fact that we believe that others are less ethical uh, than us can give us even greater license uh, to do so. Um, uh, research also shows that people uh, keep a sort of balance sheet. Uh, it's an internal balance sheet, right? It's mental, uh, such that when they do good, uh, they give themselves uh, permission uh, to um, engage in less than good uh, conduct. Uh, moral licensing uh, is even more likely to uh, take place uh, when uh, uh, people's uh, personal code of conduct is made of lofty and noble values, um, you know, in a way that creates uh, a sense of righteousness uh, that limits our own ability uh, to catch ourselves as we rationalize uh, you know, um, our, our bad conduct. Um, so, you know, these insights show the importance of engaging in reality checks, uh, the importance of seeking and providing feedback, um, you know, just when, you know, making decisions that have ethical implications. They also uh, speak to the sort of uh, complexity uh, of managing uh, corporate values in a way that actually, you know, activates uh, uh, our moral identity uh, without uh, making us righteous and uh, complacent. Um, it's interesting, you know, taking into account another, you know, just a sort of area of research. Uh, it's interesting um, that, you know, just uh, um, feeling a sense of loyalty toward the group uh, may uh, sort of uh, uh, impair our ability to do the right thing. Uh, we may use the excuse that we are uh, benefiting that group, we are doing something for that group uh, um, as a reason for, you know, just, uh, you know, for engaging in uh, uh, unethical behavior. Uh, so this is, this is uh, in just uh, in terms of group dynamics, um, this is something uh, in terms of, you know, just sometimes you, you, you see cultures uh, where allegiance and loyalty, um, you know, just uh, are uh, you know, viewed as uh, critical uh, assets. Uh, but there are, you know, clear risks um, to, you know, those sentiments and to, uh, to those values. Um, competition and its pressure uh, may also cloud uh, our ability uh, to distinguish right from wrong. And another interesting thing that, uh, you know, when I you know, was uh, studying this stuff, it kind of struck me, um, has to do with the fact that, that being in a creative mode you know, that flow experience uh, that is often uh, touted as a very positive state, well, that may make us, um, you know, just uh, um, less able to do the right thing. You know, it may generate a sense of entitlement um, uh, that, you know, just sort of uh, is misleading. And uh, finally, um, just I want to point out that when we are tired, when we feel under uh, uh, pressure, 
when we are stressed out, when we are in just emotionally depleted, all those conditions are conditions that do not bode well in terms of our own ability to make sound uh, decisions, to engage in sound re reasoning. So whenever we, 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 you know, experience um, uh, any of those states, we should stay away from important decision-making processes and uh, decision-making processes that uh, have ethical implications. So let me turn to uh, a speak-up culture, uh, whether that be a hotline, whether that be reporting line, internal uh uh, reporting, because I, I find that obviously to be incredibly important. But you make uh, clear that speak loud and clear is a fundamental uh, part of having such a program. And the fundamentals of an employee voice and even the silence are yeah. criteria that can help organizations develop a culture which people experience high ethical efficacy. Could you uh, really uh, tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, happy to. Uh, it is important to think about uh, voice and silence together. They are two sides of the same coin. For employees, uh, the choice to engage in either silence or voice depends on a number of uh, implicit and sometimes uh, explicit uh, evaluations. Uh, both, both voice and silence are a direct product of the culture of the organization, and they boil down to the value that culture assigns to each of them. Uh, moreover, and I want to point this out uh, because sometimes uh, there is a, a misunderstanding around voice, uh, both voice and silence should be looked at as a process, not as a discrete act. So you brought up the, the, the hotline and other challenge, uh, challenge, uh, channels the organization may set up because it wants uh, people uh, to report misconduct, to report unethical behavior in the same way an organization may want uh, employees to ask questions when they, when they are unsure about an ethical issue. But uh, voice, uh, especially around difficult challenges, is not the type of behavior people will engage uh, out of the blue. So if the organization doesn't encourage voice consistently, if employees are not uh, uh, presented with opportunities to practice voice, if managers uh, don't seek a use employee feedback, uh, it's unlikely that people will resort to voice when a difficult situation arises. Uh, I gotta say that the very fact that voice is not encouraged on a day-to-day -day basis is sending off the, the message that what an employee experiences is uh, unimportant uh, and it's unlikely to affect the course of things. This is, uh, this is called the, the futility uh, of voice, uh, which is one of the most disempowering factors uh, employees may face as they determine whether they should uh, speak up or you know, look the other way and mind their own business. There are also other considerations. So you brought up efficacy, and efficacy is a key uh, um, experience, a key state. Uh, when it comes to voice, uh, efficacy requires having a good understanding of what is uh, a stake, 
having access to a channel, um, you know, just, um, you know, one feels comfortable uh, using, uh, having a, an adequate understanding of how the information that is being offered will be treated, and uh, having also the right uh, uh, expectations about, you know, uh, one is going to be treated as they engage uh, in, the, in the process of sharing information or reporting something. Um, as you brought up, it's not just about voice. Uh, organizations should also pay attention to silence. Uh, silence can speak a thousand words. Uh, if a survey is conducted and nobody uh, participates in it, uh, well, that says a lot. Uh, if people are asked uh, to provide feedback um, about anything and, you know, everybody has only positive uh, things to say, uh, well, uh, you know, that doesn't jive with human nature. Uh, that is, you know, silence, uh, um, you know, disguised as voice. You know, instead of being satisfied that 95% uh, of respondents said that the things are great, uh, we should really feel compelled uh, to go deeper and find out what is going on. With a few concluding remarks, I was wondering if you might be able to look into the veiled land of the future and see where... Um, not only the framework uh, would be could be going, but where people can be uh, or corporations can utilize the framework to improve uh, their uh, culture and values and business performance at their company. Absolutely, um, and you know, just I, I want to say. Um, uh, it was uh, a, a tremendous uh, uh, honor and you know, just uh, uh, to do this work, uh, which to me is uh, uh, very important. Um, you know, I think as we said in in previous segments, uh, uh, this is a very complex time, um, a time infused with uh, change. Uh, the uh, organizations uh, uh, are faced with a tremendous uh, uh, challenges. And this is why uh, we wanted to develop this framework. We wanted to, um, you know, provide a, a tool, an instrument, a, a model that could really um, uh, help them uh, navigate all this complexity, um, you know, just uh, and the tremendous burden of these uh, challenges. So clearly, we look forward to seeing organizations using the framework in a variety of different ways, because uh, there, there are a variety of uh, potential applications attached uh, to the framework, and all of them have to do with managing risk and ethical performance. Uh, the framework is a strategic tool. Uh, it was designed uh, to guide decision makers. It was designed to assess and measure culture. Um, it should be designed to recalibrate uh, uh, key culture determinants. Uh, and it also, it should be uh, used to, um, uh, uh, to uh, hold stakeholders accountable. Um, the framework is a tool for, you know, just uh, any type of stakeholder in the organization, but uh, we believe it's going to be incredibly helpful for executive teams and boards uh, um, uh, that want to really look at a comprehensive uh, uh, risk 
profile of their organizations. Um, uh, so, you know, just if you think uh, about use, in using uh, the framework uh, that way, well, the strategic uh, culture framework can literally, you know, deliver uh, a very concise and powerful map of both risk and ethical performance. Uh, because it cuts across different layers of culture, because it provides actionable guidance, uh, because it, it highlights uh, key priorities. I also want to point out that the framework is the tool to use uh, to gauge uh, the effectiveness and impact uh, of ENC practices. Uh, effective compliance and ethics programs should reduce dilemmas and should increase ethical capacity. If they cannot move the needle in those two directions, uh, they are likely missing the mark when it comes to impact. Um, so organizations that want to make progress on the, the practices highlighted in the framework should look at those very practices through the lens of uh, the, the framework. And clearly, uh, SA Global will be delighted to support them uh, as they do this critical work um, and as they commit to creating uh, the internal pathways to a strong, vibrant, and a healthy culture. Well, Katarina, thank you very much. And the, uh, if anyone wanted to follow up with you directly or uh, find out more information, uh, could you tell us where they could go? Um, definitely. Um, I'm, with me directly, you, I'm uh, on LinkedIn. You can reach me um, on my email, uh, uh, Gmail address, katerinabulgarella at gmail.com. Uh, you should visit uh, SAA Global uh, website. Uh, there is a page um, um, dedicated to the uh, strategic culture framework. I uh, recommend uh, that in just if you're interested uh, in the framework that you download uh, the report um, uh, which sort of uh, uh, describes and illustrates a uh, um, number of things and, and more you know, that we discussed and, and more. Um, and uh, yeah, um, we are definitely, uh, I think uh, we see this uh, uh, overall effort uh, as a highly uh, collaborative effort in many ways. Uh, um, you know, the framework um, is sort of pivoting uh, around a number of, you know, just a traditional issues. So we are eager to uh, collaborate uh, with organizations uh, uh, that are interested in uh, um, in look in sort of uh, um, uh, looking at uh, certain practices uh, more in depth and also from a different angle. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom, for having me. It was a pleasure to, you know, be part of this conversation. And thank you again for giving attention to it. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to today's episode and indeed the entire five-part series on the SAI Global White Paper, Predicting at Risk, a Strategic Cultural Framework for the C-Suite. It's been a great exploration. It's a very useful tool, and I hope you will check it out. I've linked to it in the show notes. If you have enjoyed this five-part exploration, I hope you will join me for some of my other five-part explorations of various topics and compliance, all on the Compliance Podcast Network. Thank you again. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.